Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke called A Firm Grip on the Gospel with a message entitled Jesus and a Leper. So turn in your Bibles to Luke 5, verses 12 to 16, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There are diseases today that when the victim suffers from them, they not only suffer from the disease, but they also suffer from the loss of community, of fellowship, of belonging, and of sharing life and laughter and joy and sorrow. That is to say, when a person is afflicted, the social dimensions of the disease can be greater than the actual physical pain and and bodily degradation. I mean, consider blindness. I've often met people who are uncomfortable interacting with a blind person because they know the person can't respond to facial expressions, bodily cues, and so since that's a part of human communication, when that part of the equation is removed, they're left feeling uncomfortable. That's not all. I mean, consider the person who has cancer. That's terminal. I've known people who don't spend time with anyone who's terminal because the prospect of death is just overwhelming for them. And so rather than drawing close, they, they draw back. Disease and infirmity does that. Often those who have up till then have been healthy all their lives. They have a difficulty in understanding this dimension. But once illness strikes, it gives the distinctive feeling of having been transported to a different country where all the old customs and interactions are suddenly gone. Now that's true regarding many illnesses and conditions. Let's consider the matter of leprosy. And now, before we dive right in, I think a note of explanation is in order. You know, we read a great deal about leprosy in the First Testament, as well as during the time of Jesus. And when we read about it, most moderns assume that what is being described is exactly what we think of today when we think of leprosy. But a great many Bible scholars have pointed out that's not the case. Leprosy today also has another name. It's Hansen's disease. This is a disease that creates lesions and swellings in the skin, and then it progresses and attacks the nerves, and it results in a lack of feeling, especially in the extremities. And when that happens, the sufferer loses sensation, and hence they don't feel whatever they strike with their hand or foot. And wounds are also not felt. They're left to fester and spread. It results in the loss of fingers and toes, and eventually the disease disfigures terribly. You know, I've said this is not what the Bible describes when it describes leprosy. I mean, yes, the disease described in the Bible does include Hansen's disease, but the term leprosy in the Bible, that's an umbrella term that covers a wide variety of skin diseases. Some are relatively benign, and over time, they seem to clear up, and others are as serious and life-changing as what we think of when we think of leprosy today. And because the disease described in the Bible doesn't have the kind of scientific precision that we have today when describing the disease, the person who's afflicted with leprosy in the time of the Bible wouldn't have known how serious their disease was, nor would the community have known whether the individual who's suffering is contagious. And so the only prudent thing to do for the community as a whole is to place the sufferer in isolation, either until they eventually succumb to the disease or until they recover. Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 discusses that matter at length. The sufferer at first is to present himself or herself to the priest, and then the progress of the disease would be carefully monitored. And what was to be done if the disease was serious, the kind that couldn't be cured? Well, listen, 
Leviticus 13, 45 to 46 describes it. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. That sounds extreme and cruel, and it is. But this extreme measure was adopted in a way to provide safety for the entire community, that is, not to allow a pandemic to sweep through the entire nation. But what of the person who's suffering? How is he or she doing in the progress of their disease and their mental health and their inability to interact with others? You know, one Bible scholar described the experience of the sufferer as a living death. Not only were they suffering an illness, they were seen as permanently and ritually unclean. That means they were unacceptable in approaching the altar of the Lord. Their uncleanness meant they were not invited to worship. It had been crushing. Now, that's the background of the story in Luke that we need to understand when we read. So let's read now. Luke 5, 12 to 16. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Our account begins with the words, while he was in one of the cities. And from the context, one of the cities must mean one of the cities in Galilee. You know, Jesus is headquartered in Capernaum, and from there, he's journeying to the entire surrounding region. It would have been that the city in question might have been, you know, one of the cities that ring the Sea of Galilee. Well, nonetheless, he's not in Capernaum, and he's conducting his itinerant ministry in a city in the area. And while at this city, Luke tells us there came a man, he says, full of leprosy. And that means that whatever the disease was, it was not benign. And furthermore, the disease would have progressed to the late stages. Full of leprosy gives that impression. The surprising part of the story is that the leper approaches Jesus. The phrase, there came a man full of leprosy, that's shocking. A man full of leprosy was not supposed to come. He was supposed to stay away at some distance. And so reading this account, we know something is happening that's out of the ordinary. And it warrants a question. What would cause this man to have the temerity to approach Jesus? And I can think of no other answer than he had received a word that Jesus was exceptionally compassionate to the person who was suffering. And given this growing reputation, this man had mustered his courage to the sticking point and decided he would risk doing that, which in all other circumstances would have been forbidden. So all that's the background to this encounter. The leper then sees Jesus and he falls on his face before him. And we assume now he's lying face down and he's speaking to Jesus with his face down into the dirt. He's not looking at him, but he speaks loud enough for Jesus to hear. And how does his voice sound? Luke says he's begging. Now, perhaps given that he has the disease he has, he's probably accustomed to begging. It's possible. His life as it has progressed has robbed him of all dignity. And as he begs, he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. I think because of some of the false teaching that's happened in our day, that we do well to stop and consider this request. 
Notice his first words are not words of certainty. He does not know if Jesus would be willing. And I point this out because in our day, there have been an abundance of false teachers who have doggedly claimed that if we doubt our healing, that we're exhibiting unbelief rather than faith, and then in that context, we're never going to get healed. They teach that unless you claim I'm already healed and then continue to confess that, that no healing will come your way. And then to make the matter worse, they claim that the reason some people remain ill and don't experience healing is that they've not had the proper kind of faith, a faith they call the God kind of faith. And so some of my hearers may have heard this over and over again, and you've even come to believe that this is what the Bible teaches, that you need to claim your healing boldly and without doubt that it will happen and then it does. And I know, I know. You know, these people claim that there's a Bible verse that backs it up, like Mark 11, 23 and 24, in which Jesus says that you are not to doubt in your heart, but believe what you say will come to pass. And if I had the time, I'd point out that this verse speaks about something very specific, and it was never, never intended as a way in which we must always pray. In short, without examination of the context of that passage, The modern false teachers argue that we can, through our words and our belief, create our own healing. Now, you need to contrast that view with this man. If you will, he says to Jesus, without any surety as to whether Jesus will or not. It's not that he believes that he has what he says. That idea hasn't entered into his mind. Instead, he has another idea. He doesn't think he can create his healing by faith. You know, in the words he speaks, rather, he thinks that he has no power at all to heal himself, but that Jesus has that power. Notice again, the leper doesn't know if Jesus will heal, but he does know that Jesus is able to heal. Of that, he has no doubt at all. One word from the mouth of this remarkable man and everything will be changed. The power lay not in the leper or in his words, the power lay in Jesus. You can make me clean, he says, with his face to the ground, never daring to look up. Theology isn't just for pastors and Bible experts. It's for everyone seeking to better understand the God of the Bible and the depth of his love for us. And one of the most mysterious, intriguing, and life-changing doctrines is that of God's providence. Once you grasp the reality that God is actively directing all aspects of your life, your faith will be revolutionized. To that end, we're excited to share that this month, Back to the Bible Canada is offering Dr. John's new book called In All Things, God's Providence, at a special introductory price of only $5, or for the very first time, you'll be able to digitally download the entire book for free at backtothebible.ca. But you'll want to act now, because after this month, the book will only be available at its regular price of $17.99 or downloadable for $3.99. So order your copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. When James, the half-brother of Jesus, was writing scripture at the inspiration of the Spirit, he taught us something about prayer. 
He says that we should only say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. That is, our lives, our health, our plans, everything happens at the permission of God. No, we don't go around commanding things as if we are the Lord of our lives and our future. That that we are the Lord of our own lives, that's a lie of Satan. That's the lie that seduced Eve when Satan promised her that she would be like God. In contrast, hear how the leaders of the early church, the writers of Scripture talked. Hebrews 6.13, this we will do if God permits. Or think when Paul wrote to the Philippians about their friend Epaphrodites, who had almost died. And why did he not die? Listen, does Paul say, well, he didn't die because I claimed healing over him? No, Paul doesn't say that. Rather, the false teachers pretend they can do that. But Paul says, Philippians 2.27, indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So why didn't Epaphrodites die? Not because Paul claimed it. No, he didn't die because God had mercy on both Epaphrodites and on Paul. That's the reason. And interestingly enough, it seems to me that this leper had the very same approach. If, he says, if you decide in your wisdom and in the compassion that you obviously have, if you decide, then I have no doubt at all that I will be clean. If you will, if it be your will. Yeah, that very phrase, the phrase that has been mocked by the false teachers in our day is the phrase that's exalted in the Bible. And you, my listener, never, never join the mockers and mock the phrase, if the Lord wills, for that's what the Bible exalts. And of course, as we read in the text, Jesus responds, he is willing. He says so. He stretches out his hand and does something the the leper will not have felt for some time, a human hand touching him. No one has touched him. He was unclean, but Jesus broke through that by saying, I will make you clean. And with that, he touches the man. Luke, who, as you remember, is a physician, says the leprosy left him immediately. Now, again, as we've been doing, let's contrast that to the modern-day false teachers and look how this contradicts the modern-day false teachers. They say, just keep confessing your healing and eventually it will come. You confess it, they say, in the spirit realm and then watch it happens in the natural realm. That approach to life corresponds not with biblical thinking, but with Greek dualism. Notice the difference with Jesus. The very moment he touches the man and says, I am willing, Luke says the results are instant. Yeah, it's the truth about Jesus. He merely speaks the word and the demon-possessed man is delivered. And Peter's mother-in-law is healed and so forth. And here he speaks and the results don't come about after a long period of confessing healing. No, no, that's not Jesus. Jesus is God. He speaks as he did at creation when the world appeared at his word. He speaks to the leper. Word is powerful. The results are instantaneous. I dare the false teachers in our day to replicate that the ones that claim to be able to cast mountains into the sea. My response is, hey, come and visit me where I live. I'm surrounded by mountains and it's right up to the sea. Go ahead, pick any mountain you like, throw it into the sea by your faith. Look, you can't do it and you can't make the blind see and the lame walk and you can't cleanse the lepers either. But Jesus can, he can do what no other human being can. He speaks and instantly the man with lesions on his skin, no doubt, resulting in disfigurement of his face, the man whose disease had progressed to such a degree that no one would look at him, that man was instantly cleansed. 
I make this point so that we grasp it. I've often wondered what it would have been like to have been there. And I don't know. But it would have been the evidence that the kingdom of God has broken into the present moment. God had begun to reign and all sin and ensuant disease and death was bound to end. Now, it would have been wonderful to end the story there. But unfortunately, you know, at this moment of glory, things take a bad turn. The negative things happen after Jesus charged this man. No one was to know. And that man simply didn't obey. As to why Jesus would have demanded this of the man, you know, one of the reasons has to be that Jesus is aware that there will be a misunderstanding in the case of this healing regarding his messianic identity. You know, in some instances, Jesus' healing ministry excited a kind of a frenzy that people demanded that he would become the king of Israel, that he would set up a revolt against the Roman Empire. And this cleansing of this leper was sure to excite this messianic fervor that would be so great that it was in danger of subverting the true mission of Jesus. And so in this case, Jesus tells this man, keep it a secret. Now, there are other times when Jesus also demanded that things be kept a secret. I mean, there were two blind men. Matthew records this in Matthew 9. Jesus healed them, and then he warned them to tell no one, and they ignored his instructions. Then he heals a man with a withered hand. That was a miracle done in the synagogue. That's recorded in Matthew 12. And consequently, the Pharisees conspired to kill him after that, and Jesus, because of that, was forced to withdraw. And then after healing others, he orders them not to make it known, he says, because of the reaction. People will misunderstand the mission of Jesus. People, some will want to kill Jesus, and other crazed crowds will only follow him because of the miracles and will stop listening to his message. And so for all of those reasons, to this cleansed leper, Jesus tells him to show himself to the priest and to keep the matter quiet. Now, as to why to show himself to the priest, well, the priest, according to the law, in Leviticus 13 and 14, they were to examine the person to see if the leprosy was still there and whether it presented a threat to the wider community or whether it was truly gone. You know, this man was to go to the priest and be proclaimed clean, and that proclamation would be of great benefit to him. The community would know that he would be invited back in. Now, the actual process of being pronounced clean, that would take time, usually take a week. Two birds would be taken, one would be sacrificed, the surviving bird would be dipped in blood, and it would then be released. And it was a beautiful picture as to how sacrifice was required to free someone from the bondage that held them fast. And then on the eighth day of this ceremony, two lambs would be sacrificed, or if the worshiper was too poor to afford lambs, they would be allowed to sacrifice doves. In the end, the one suffering from the disease would be proclaimed as clean and cured. And in many ways, that's a picture that prefigures how Christ is sacrificed for us so that we would be free from the stain of sin. So Jesus tells this man to do all of these things in keeping with the law of God and not to ignore the commands that are found in Scripture. Now, the application is obvious. We should never think that a miracle frees us from the command to be obedient. Even if we're the recipient of a wonderful miracle, yet we must not fall into disobedience or there will be a curse upon us. For we who have received mercy must respond in gratefulness and in humility, and we must humble ourselves and never ignore the commands of the Bible. Nonetheless, this man cleansed of leprosy decides he's not going to keep Jesus' command. You know, on the one hand, you know, we might argue, well, look, 
you know, the fame of Jesus is growing. There are greater crowds than ever before because everyone's talking about the miracles that he's done. The priests have inspected him. He's clean. And now we have evidence that Jesus is doing these miracles. Now, if I might be allowed, I could make one more crack at the modern TV healers. They never sent anyone to a doctor with a clear record of before and after and a thorough published scientific objective record of what has occurred. They don't do that because that would expose them for the charlatans that they are. But Jesus is none of that. His miracles are attested. That's the difference. And because of that, the crowd's increasing. It's not just a hope that he might heal. They have seen the real thing. Now, Luke reports that Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. His motivation remains clear. He has come to do the will of the Father, and his greatest business is that he will always be in the presence of his Father. Jesus, unlike the leper who was healed, always lives a life of obedience to the one who sent him. What's the lesson learned? Physical healing, be it as grand as the removal of leprosy, all of that is no substitute to bending the knee before God and living in submission to him. We should always say, thy will not mine be done, and no matter what the healing might be, it does not remove from us that we must remain biblical, faithful, obedient, humble, and ready to respond to the commands of God. Nothing but nothing substitutes for that. Thanks for your message, John. You know, given the amount of false teaching on healing and fake healings and things of that nature, would you then say that healing no longer takes place? Thank you for that question. I know that's a great debate among uh, various uh, Bible teachers, depending on a theological perspective that they have. But let me say this. Um, it, It seems to me that there is no place in the Bible where we are told that God's healing would cease. So I simply believe that it's ongoing, and I know that experientially as well. I've known a number of individuals whom God has wonderfully healed. But we need to remember that the choice of healing belongs to the will of God. Let him do what's good in his sight. Let us pray, not my will but yours be done, and then pray and beseech him most earnestly. So yes, we can expect healing. And yes, some people may be gifted in a way to pray for that, But let's also remember that everything comes from God and we depend on Him. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Firm Grip on the Gospel, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Every Bible truth should be known. Every Bible truth should be lived. And frankly, it's easier to know what God says than it is to live it well. That's a gap Back to the Bible Canada wants to address in our new blog format. Starting 2024, Dr. John Newfeld and other trusted Christian leaders will provide a Bible-focused and practically-oriented resource to bridge the gap between faith and life. This resource will focus on the how-to in matters like shaping a consistent prayer life, wrestling with temptation, and navigating the advance of years. Each theme will reflect not only what the Bible says, but how our theology can be translated into our experience. 
Well, you can check out each new issue at backtothebible.ca and be sure to subscribe to receive each new article as it's available sent directly to your inbox.